0: Well, two weeks ago, Pastor Rankin took us through chapter 8 of Nehemiah. And in it, we saw uh, in verse 4 that as Ezra stood to read God's word, he stood on a platform specifically built for the purpose. And many of you may know, uh, Mr. Neil Hare had this um, pulpit actually built specifically for Christ Church. It was made for our pastors. And so, you know, you've heard the expression, big shoes to fill. Well, this is a massive pulpit to fill. And despite my height, I'm not a preaching giant like the ones I'm following. But as Pastor Emma Kiwanuku said last week, don't worry about who I am because thankfully this is not my message, right? This is the word of the Lord. So turn with me in your copy of God's word to Nehemiah chapter 9. But before we attempt to read and preach and understand God's word, let's go to the Lord one more time and ask for his blessing father in heaven uh, thank you so much for your word we ask that by your spirit you would shine your light brightly on this text and we ask lord that you would help us to understand so that we would not just be hearers of your word lord god but we would be doers speak lord god your servants are listening in jesus name we pray amen nehemiah chapter 9 hear god's word now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebanyah, "'Buni, Sherabiah, Bani, and Kanani. "'And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. "'Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, "'Hishabniyah, Sherabiah, Hodiah, Shebanyah, and Pathahiah "'said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God "'from everlasting to everlasting. "'Blessed be your glorious name, "'which is exalted above all blessing and praise. "'You are the Lord, you alone.'" You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, and the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day and you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them to light for them the way in which they should go you came down on mount sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give to them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth. ...and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them the kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner, so that they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess." So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat, and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, and rebelled against you. They cast their law behind your back, and they killed your prophets, who you had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they still did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. What an amazing and humbling response to God's word this is. And there's uh, so much here, but what we want to focus on is this response, this response of prayer Uh, to the reading of God's Word. And by the way, this isn't just a short little reading of God's Word. right? If you think that was a long text, they read for a quarter of the day, right? And then for another quarter of it, they have this confession and worship taking the shape of this amazing prayer. And so that's what we're going to focus on. We're going to focus on this prayer. But by the way, you may have a footnote in verse 6 that says uh, that this is Ezra speaking. And I think it's clear that Ezra is the one offering up this prayer on behalf of God's people. But whether it's Ezra or any of the other Levites, it really doesn't matter. It's basically what's going on every Lord's Day that we have here. We have uh, our pastors, we have our elders leading us in corporate prayer on behalf of all of God's people, right? So this is the prayer of all of God's people. So it's a model to instruct all of us. Okay, so we're going to look at three aspects in particular of this prayer. First, we're going to look at how this is a prayer of praise. They're worshiping and adoring God. And then they move to a prayer for pardon. They're confessing their sins and asking for pardon. And then they have something to ask. And we move into this prayer of petition. So first, let's look at this prayer of praise. And this is in verses 5 to 15. They're adoring and worshiping God. And in fact, if you uh, look at verse 5, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Um, Sunday morning, we actually use this as our call to worship. And that's just what it is. They say, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so they're calling the people to worship God, to pray this prayer of praise. So how are they praising him? Well, first of all, they're praising him as the creator, right? He is the powerful creator. Look at verse 6. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, and the seas and all that is in them. Right? Every domain of creation and everything existing in all of those domains. This is everything, every aspect of creation. They're listing it out specifically. Now, you know, we've, we've heard this a lot here at Christ Church. I've been here, you know, less than a year, and this has already been burned into my brain. But how do we pray? Particularly, exactly, okay? And that's not just for prayer requests, prayers of petition and supplication, right? This is also, we're also to pray particularly when we pray prayers of praise to God. And we'll come back to this idea of particularly praising God in just a minute. But next we see as he's the powerful creator, but he also is preserving his creation. Again, look in verse 6. And you preserve all of them. Right? So we're not deists. We don't think that God created the earth. Uh, the Bible doesn't teach that God created everything and he sits back and waits to see what's going to happen. No, he is upholding all things by the word of his power, like Hebrews tells us. Right? He's involved in his creation. Okay? But even more than just preserving his creation, verse 8 tells us that he is a covenant God. Right? He is this great covenant-keeping God. You made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land. Right? So we see that God is the powerful creator, but then he's still upholding all things and preserving all things. But even more than that, he has involved himself in a covenant relationship with his people. Right? And we see that he is good. For you are righteous, the end of verse 8 tells us. He is a good God. So he's powerful, but thankfully he's also good. And even more than being good, He's gracious, right? Because it's one thing to be good to someone who deserves it, right? Someone who's nice to you, you're nice to them back. It's really easy, right? But the people that are your enemies, the people that are sinning against you, that's grace and mercy and love, right? And this God, this great covenant-keeping God, by the act of establishing a covenant with sinful man, is in and of itself gracious. So, again, why are we listing all these specific things? If you um, if you look at verses 9 all the way through 15... They're recounting all the signs and wonders that God is doing, bringing them up up out of the land of Egypt. Why are we listing all these things tediously? Well, I played baseball, and I tend to see uh, everything through this grid of sports. So if you'll bear with me for a second, I think a helpful illustration for me would be just to imagine it's Game 7 of the World Series. Okay, It's the final game of the World Series, and it's the bottom of the ninth. Okay, your teammate comes up to bat, and you're down by three. Okay, the bases are loaded, two outs, and it's the full count. And you don't have to know anything about baseball. You don't have to like baseball at all to understand that this is the moment that every little slugger dreams of. Okay, this is the, the most pressure situation that you can possibly imagine. Okay, so let's say your teammate gets the job done. He wins the game, winning the World Series for your team, making your team the best team in the world for that year. Okay, And you say, well, you did what you were supposed to. What, do you want a cookie or something? What? Okay, way to go. No, you want to you know, involve everything that you have in, in this, this conversation that you're going to have with him. You're going to be so overwhelmed and thankful and just really go into praising him specifically. It would be like saying, wow, you saw the pitch out of his hand and you recognized it was a slider immediately. You could tell that it was going to be low in a way and you weren't afraid. You swung with everything that you had, and you hit the ball right on the sweet spot, and it went soaring over the outfield, over the fans, out of the stadium, right? Out of the park, walk off Grand Slam to win the World Series, okay? And the crowd went wild. I love that idea of just the crowd going wild. Look at the end of verse 6. And the host of heaven worships you. Can you just imagine for a second, all the hosts of heaven All the warrior angels, the cherubim and the seraphim, praising God in his infinite glory for all of the aspects of God's creation. You see how much more impactful it is when we start to get specific and we start to stop and think for a minute about all the things that God has done and all the aspects of God's character. right? And so I think that uh, that's what really makes... A good hymn, a good hymn. You can ask Miss Gladys. She's the expert on this, not me. But I'm not even talking about just the music. But, you know, you hear an amazing hymn, and it's so amazing because it's specific about who God is. It's biblical and talking about his character. It's not just we praise you, God. You're the best. Amen. Hallelujah. And we're done. No, why? Okay, for one reason, it's more glorifying to God to get specific. But honestly, I need help. I need a reason. Right. I'm stubborn. I need someone to tell me why do I need to praise God? Well, he made you, first of all. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay, And listing all these things, recounting all the wonderful, glorious works of God. That makes me want to praise him. And so naturally, as we start uh, praising God and get specific about who he is, we start to realize who we are in contrast. All these things that we're talking about, God, I'm the exact opposite. In fact, I'm not just not God. I'm incredibly sinful. We start to realize and turn from this outward looking to God to this introspection of the sin in our own lives. And it moves us to this prayer for pardon. And that's what the Israelites do here in verses roughly 16 to 31. I say roughly because these sections aren't as clear-cut as we might think. And we'll come back to that idea in just a minute. But they're confessing their sins to God. And many of you have a heading in your Bible at the beginning of the chapter the people of Israel confess their sin, right? Because that's what the vast majority of what they're doing here is. After they've praised God, they realize we need to confess our sin. And they're admitting this long line of sins in the past. And this strikes me as a bit strange at first. Um, It seems like, okay, they're confessing the sins of their fathers. You remember uh, in verse 2, they confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Okay, well, what does that have to do with anything? Why are we talking about the sins... Of our fathers, sounds like blame shifting in a sense. We remember in Psalm 51, that great psalm of confession written by King David, right after he's messed up big time, right? What does he say? He he says, "In sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity." Right? He's not saying, God, you know, yeah, I know I messed up, but it's my mom's fault. She brought me into the world a sinner. It's human nature. What are you gonna do? You know? No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, from the very beginning, I have been a sinner. It's, it's down to the core of, my, of who I am, right? And that's what the Israelites are saying. From the very beginning, we're made of the same stuff as our fathers. They're sinful. We've always been sinful, right? And that's why they're admitting this long line of sins. In my family, we say, that's the cloth from which I'm cut, right? This is, this is the cloth that we're cut from, right? This is what the Israelites are saying. They're not blame-shifting. It's identification. Okay? And so what this does is this attacks our individualistic mindset that I think is particularly prevalent here in America, right? That's why every Lord's Day this morning, you know, we prayed a corporate prayer of confession together to kind of get um, our minds off of just ourselves. Uh, And I know that I struggle with this. Um, You know, I... I don't like someone telling me all the things that I have to do, right? It's just me and God and my Bible and some coffee. And that's all I need, right? Like, And then I'm good. You can't tell me what to do. But that's not the biblical principle. That's not the biblical model, right? Okay, so they're admitting this long line of sins, but they're also alluding to past mercies. If you stop and think about this, this is even more bizarre Than admitting these past sins, alluding to the past mercies. Think about this for a second. Imagine I sin against my wife, Rachel, okay? And as a good Christian wife, she calls me out in my sin. She brings it to my attention, says that I've sinned against her, and I acknowledge it, and I say, Well, you know, Rachel, this is not the first time this has happened. You know, in fact, I did it last week, and you forgave me, and the week before that. You know, actually, this is a pretty regular habit, and you always forgive me, so you should forgive me again now and we'll move on, right? No, hopefully she would smack me. That's what I would deserve, right? That is not the attitude to have. That is not confession. So what's going on? Why are they alluding to past mercies? God, you've been merciful in the past. No, what they're saying is, God, remember how you were so amazing, and you delivered us out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. You remember how you've rescued us from our enemies time and time and time again, Lord. We are banking on your faithfulness, right? Because with God, who is unchanging, it's like appealing to case law. It's like referring back to a legal precedent that's been set in the past. God, you've been covenantally faithful time and time again. That's what we're asking for again now. You see the difference in that tone as they're alluding to past mercies. So they've admitted this long line of sins, and they've alluded to these past mercies, but then that brings them into the present, right? They're admitting their current sin. Verses 32 and 36, they use this phrase, this day. I love that. It's not even today, it's this day, right? And that just shows us that sin is not just a past reality, right? It's pervasive in our hearts, in our lives, in our culture today, just as it has been for thousands of years. And so if we ever think, oh, well, I've arrived, you know, spiritually, then we need a reality check, right? We're not ever full on our sanctification. We need to be moved to confession uh, and continually confessing our sins. And, you know, confession just means to agree, to say the same thing, to acknowledge, just to agree with somebody. So we're agreeing with God. We're saying the same thing that he says about our sin. right? We're saying the same thing about ourselves as he says about us. And when we really start to think about what sin is, we don't want to think of it as being an enemy of God. It's just, well, we're not quite as good as we should be. But when we start to stop and confess our sin and say, God, when I'm sinning, I'm rebelling against you. And we start to realize the gravity and the seriousness of our sin when we're really confessing. But that's just the first half, right? We don't wallow in our self-pity. We don't wallow in our sin and say, Oh, well, I'm hopeless. I'm always going to be a sinner. No, that moves us to ask for new mercies, right? They've been alluding to these past mercies, and now they're asking for new mercies. And thankfully, we have this great promise in Lamentations that gets picked up on this theme in the, the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. And so it's an amazing thing to see these new mercies continually. So after they pray this prayer of praise, and then they start to realize how sinful they are and begin to pray this prayer for pardon, then they have something to ask, right? This is this prayer of petition. And this is this last section, verses 32 to 37. And I said these sections are kind of rough breaks because, for example, you remember uh, we've Prayed, uh, perhaps, the ACTS model. A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I think that's a pretty helpful way to pray. It's helped me to kind of shape my prayers and put some forethought into the way that I pray. They kind of logically flow one from the next into the other, right? But here, what we see is more of a tight-knit, organic unity, one kind of flowing back and forth into the other. For instance, in verse 32, it's a return of prayer It's a return back to this prayer of praise, right? Now, therefore, they're addressing God to ask him for something. And I love this. They can't even address God without going back to praising him some more, right? Now, therefore, verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, right? We're going back to this this creator, powerful, preserving God. He's great. He's mighty. He's awesome. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love, right? Right? He's the covenant loving God. We got this return to this prayer of praise. And then, at the end of verse 33, we see this return to the prayer for pardon. At the end of verse 33 through 35, we see, um, we have acted wickedly. They go on again to recount their sins. Again, right? This return to this prayer for pardon. Okay, so finally, what is this prayer of petition? What are they actually asking for? Well, we've been slaves. And we need you to come in, and we need you to, to kill our enemies, and we need you to deliver us again right now, please, right? Not exactly, okay? Now, they don't ever actually ask the Lord to make it stop, change our circumstances. Now, that's, of course, implicit. You can, like, hear it in their tone of voice. And, yes, you can hear a tone of voice in written documents, right? Like, ask any teenager when they're texting. You can hear a tone of voice, right? And you can just hear this as, as they're crying out to God, We are slaves. We are slaves, right? And we're not just slaves anywhere. We are slaves in the land that you specifically gave to us to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts in our own homes. We're slaves. This isn't right. And we are in great distress. End of verse 37. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. So what are they actually asking for? Their their implicit you know, petition is, of course, Lord, this is terrible. But what they're not saying is, you know, Lord, make it stop. So what are they actually asking for? What is their explicit petition? Well, actually, in full reliance upon God's sovereign will, they simply ask that He realize that this isn't no big deal. Right? They're saying, Lord, can you have sympathy on us? Look at verse thirty two. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. That's their cry to the Lord. That's their petition. They're asking the Lord to have sympathy. And thank God that prayer gets answered. That prayer gets answered in Jesus. The author of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us and our weaknesses, but one who in every respect is like us. He has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you see, this is the ultimate answer to this prayer of petition. Jesus knows. He knows what we're going through. In fact, he knows much more than you and I will ever have to experience. He experienced it way worse than you and I will ever have to. He can sympathize fully. But not only does he know, he's conquered, right? Jesus has defeated sin and death in the flesh on behalf of his people, he is the covenant mediator, right? Because he is this great high priest offering the sacrifice, and he is the sacrifice. He's the covenant sacrifice allowing this covenant relationship that we were talking about a minute ago, that God the Father involved his covenant on his people. Jesus is our access to this covenant God. Which brings us to the conclusion of the text in verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Now, what are they saying? Now, they're saying, we are going to resolve, because of all this, more firmly to follow the Lord. We're going to resolve and commit our actions to obey God. And so, what we see here is that this prayer is not just about words, right? This model for prayer is not just words, right? Right? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? What we see here is that their response is from a change within. These aren't just words, there's no magical formulaic expression that we can conjure up and say to God to earn any type of better relationship with Him, right? The change comes from within. So let's ask the question that Pastor Rankin put to us last time How does this text hit you? What's our response? Do we say, wow, so many times God kept forgiving the Israelites? He says he's never going to stop forgiving. I can do whatever I want. I can sin as much as I want. He's going to keep giving me grace. In fact, the more I think about it, the more I sin, the more grace I get. So let's sin more that grace may abound. I hope we never have that response. right? Or on the other hand, do we respond like we heard from Pastor Greco this morning with thankfulness? Mourning By morning, new mercies I see. Wow, that's overwhelming. Every single day, God hits me in the face with his grace and mercy, and I can't help but respond with gratitude. And now I want to resolve as firmly as I can to follow him and to obey him and turn these words into actions. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him to help us to firmly commit to obeying him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you so much uh, for uh, this indictment on your people, but also uh, this uh, history of your forgiveness, Lord. We know that we will never exhaust your forgiveness. We know that we see your mercies new every morning if we repent, Lord. So we ask that you would, by your spirit, give us the grace of repentance. Help us to turn back from our sin and to turn to you and to obey you, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.